Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. When you're young and you're trying to figure out your life, you don't usually know what you're good at, right? These kind of things take time. And not everyone finds their calling in life the way that, say, Kamasi Washington did. He is a, an acclaimed jazz composer, band leader, and he also plays the saxophone beautifully. I never thought that I could make music like the music that I liked because I was, hadn't found my voice. And it was like when I found the saxophone, like it was almost immediate, like it was like I could see it. It was like all of a sudden, like, oh, we're there, right there. That's where you will be able to make music that you like enjoy. And I was like, oh, wow, I could do that? Like, I could make a song that make me feel the way I feel when I hear this Art Blakey record? I could do that? Like, oh, wow. And then I was just hooked, you know, all that addictive personality. Like, 97% of it went <laughs> right into the saxophone and music. It's Bullseye. This week, Kamasi Washington, one of the most talented jazz musicians alive today. But the saxophone wasn't always his instrument of choice. You know, I'm, I remember in school, like, everybody had the recorders, and I had a clarinet, and that, and that was just really, really cool, because, you know, it was so much cooler than the recorder. Probably the coolest a clarinet has ever been is when I brought my clarinet to school for music day, and everybody else had recorders. Plus, Kamasi tells me about the thrill he gets from being really good at Street Fighter II. So good, in fact, that he wrote his own walk-up music for the arcade game. Yeah, when I walk into the arcade, they should play that and strike fear and all the, <laughs> all the nerds. <laughs> Finally, a special treat. A short story from the brilliant comedy writer Simon Rich. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Kamasi Washington. He plays the saxophone. He also does a lot of production work. He's collaborated with Thundercat, Ryan Adams, Flying Lotus, Run the Jewels. That's only a few. You can hear his work on the classic Kendrick Lamar album, To Pimp a Butterfly, as well. Do you believe in me? Are you deceiving me? Could I let you down easily? Is your heart where it need to be? Is your smile on permanent? Is your foul on lifetime? What you know where the sermon is? If I died in this next line, if I'm trying to... But to define Kamasi Washington by the people he's collaborated with is to do him a disservice. He's a dynamic, thrilling composer and band leader. Between 2005 and now, he's recorded about half a dozen solo records, and they are brilliant. If you fell in love with the work of Alice Coltrane or Pharaoh Sanders, you'll hear something familiar in Kamasi's music. Like them, Kamasi writes songs from a transcendent, almost spiritual place. It's strange and lush, hypnotizing melodies. The songs run long. But just like the free jazz greats before him, you end up losing yourself. But Washington isn't a product of the late 60s. He grew up in the 80s. He was raised here in Los Angeles, where we make Bullseye. And he grew up listening to jazz music, but also N.W.A. and Marvin Gaye and Snoop Dogg. So the music he makes is eclectic, but effortlessly so. It's why his albums have ended up on so many critics' top ten lists. And it's also why those same critics have written thousands of words asking the same question— can Kamasi Washington make jazz a young person's game again? It's kind of a weird position to be in, to be called the savior of the kind of music that you live and breathe. He doesn't think about it much. Instead, he keeps putting out new music, working on new collaborations. His latest record is called Heaven and Earth. Let's listen to a track off it. It's called Street Fighter Moss. <laughs>
Kamasi Washington, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Is that really a song that you wrote for yourself to be your own theme music when you're playing Street Fighter? <laughs> yeah, when I walk into the arcade, they should play that and strike fear and all the all the nerds. <laughs> I mean, if you at this point in your career, you could you could probably afford to have a guy roll with you, and if you just have that guy carry a tape deck, yeah, with a, with a boombox, <laughs> yeah. Um, fighting games are interesting to me because. The amount of focus it takes to execute the often really complicated it's things like that are required. Yeah, that's that's what made me think of it. Like it is kind of weirdly like learning an instrument. You have to practice, and you have to like stay on it too. Like if you stop playing for a little while, it kind of you lose your stuff. It's intense. It's intense, and like it's um, it's one of those. It's very addictive. So I always warn people like it's fun. But if you are, if you have a competitive spirit kind of in it, like if you, if you're able to take things that aren't that serious and and be serious about them, <laughs> which is you know, I think that's like the the personality type that gets in the fighting games, like because it's not really a serious thing, but like it will ruin your day. <laughs> <laughs> like someone, like you get a bad beat, like a, like a bad loss, and it would like affect you. Like you'd be like you'd be sitting there eating dinner hours later, you're like. I knew it. I knew. I, I knew. <laughs> I just knew he was going to jump. <laughs> That's why I did that dragon punch because he was going to jump. I knew. I, I felt like he did jump. <laughs> you know. I think in the video you're playing regular Street Fighter Two, like on an arcade console. Is that yeah. your Street Fighter? Because there's a bunch of them. I play most of the Street Fighters from Street Fighter Two up until now. I, I, right now, I'm playing Street Fighter Five. Do you have a favorite character in Street Fighter to play? Um, Ryu has definitely been my like classic character throughout all the different games, like you know, since Street Fighter Two. Um, I like the stretchy arms guy. That's my favorite. Oh, guy. Dawson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I use. I mean, in Street Fighter Five. I use. I use Blanca as well, and I use Guile. Ryu got a, a little bit nerfed in this game, but I still use Ryu. I think he's still a good character. Um, I use a character called Falk as well. Have you ever been to one of these tournaments where somebody like rents a warehouse and people drive up trucks full of? Of Street Fighter Two consoles and like load them into the warehouse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been to Evo a few times, and you know, for a minute, I mean, I have a few friends that are like professional Street Fighter players, so I would go to like bar fights, just like a like a fighting game tournament at a bar. Um, I've been to quite a few tournaments. I mean, like I said, if if you're able to to, to get beyond the fact that like we are taking this much too seriously, <laughs> you know, and just embrace it. Embrace it and be more serious about this and talk about it <laughs> in more detail than you probably should. And talk about frame data and, and you know, and all those other things that we get into. It's fun. You know, I read an interview with your dad, who is also a musician, where he described that you were capable, even as a kid, of sitting down and playing piano for hours. You were the person in your family or in your generation of the family who, when you sat down at the piano, you stayed at the piano. That's a little bit like that kind of focus that you need to to play Street Fighter for hours. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have an addictive personality. So, like, um, um, and I have, like, a, a long attention span. So, like, I don't get bored easily. You know, I can do... Anything that I'm enjoying doing, I can do it for a long time, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remember being a kid. I mean, I could, I could, uh, you know, I could, I could sit around and like, I can also just sit around and daydream for a long time and just literally like stare out the window and have a whole little scene and movie play out in my head. I don't know. It's just, it's part of you know. And so when I when I really got into music, it definitely was a benefit. Because it was like, you know, where it was like some kids had a hard time practicing. It was like once I started practicing, I had a hard time stopping. You know, it was like once I got going, I didn't want to stop. I, I imagine that it was your father who first put an instrument in your hand. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Did you like it? I mean, were you too young to know the difference between liking it and not liking it? Yeah, I mean, my first instrument was drums, and I was probably like three. So I don't really—I mean, I remember getting the drum set because I got it for my birthday, 
and um, but it's hard for me to remember not having it. You know what I mean? I remember getting it, but trying to remember life before it, before music, it's kind of hard for me to. You know, it's, it's super fuzzy. Did you always? <clears throat> want to do it in a serious way or was there a period i mean like there were things my dad wanted me to do and i did not do any of them (laughs) (laughs) no i wasn't i wasn't really serious about it at first you know i had an older brother that was really kind of like a child prodigy so it was kind of his thing you know but i i I always liked music but i wasn't like serious about it you know um so you know i didn't really get serious about music until i started playing saxophone yeah, before that, you know, I liked music. I liked playing it. You know, I liked playing the instruments. It was fun, and I did it very much recreationally. You know, I'm, I remember in school, like everybody had the recorders, and I had a clarinet, and that, and that was just really, really cool because you know, it was so much cooler than the recorder. Probably the coolest a clarinet has ever been is when I brought my clarinet to school for music day and everybody else had recorders. I was about to say, I think this is the first time since like 1967 that someone has announced how cool their clarinet is. Oh, it was the coolest thing to all the other kids. You know, if you don't have an instrument and and I, you know, because my, my, dad, my dad had been giving me lessons so like I could, I could play, like I could play. Like, I, I remember I, I, knew all, I knew a lot of the boys to men songs on the clarinet and like I'll do some Jodeci songs and I could play like some of the hooks from like N.W.A. I just knew radio songs on the clarinet and it was a clarinet it was like wood and it, I could play in any key and the recorder was like limited it was it was very much like it was like an electric guitar compared to those recorders you know it was it was, it was pretty rock star did you have a signature tune I mean was it like wait until you hear my lay your head on my pillow <laughs> what was it no 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 it wasn't lay your head on your pillow it was um if I ever fall in love I'm not going to sing it right now because, you know, evidence of me singing that song. And it's not <laughs> necessarily, not necessarily the move, but yeah, that was like the song, yeah. What happened when you started playing saxophone when you were 12? Well, a few, like a year and a half, two years before that, I got into jazz. And when you were like 10? 10 or 11, around in there somewhere. I think that might be unusual, even in a household where your dad is a professional jazz musician. <laughs> well, it was in, I mean, my dad had been trying to get me into jazz. It felt late to him. You know, he was, he was like showing me ascensions and ohm and stuff like that when I was like five. So if I, I was sure to him, it was like it felt like finally, jeez, you know. But uh, when I got into jazz, you know, I was really into Art Blakey and Jazz Messengers and Wayne Shorter, and, and you know, I got into like Charlie Parker. I really liked the saxophone. And my dad, since I had been playing clarinet the whole time, he kept telling me that the clarinet and the saxophone were the same thing. And so I was trying to learn those songs on clarinet. And it was like, first of all, they were just hard like to do because they're not exactly the same. And it just didn't sound the same. And I was just like, man, it just does just, just not sound the same. He was like, no, it's because you haven't practiced and I remember like getting the saxophone. Well, he had a saxophone out one day, and I just picked it up and and I figured out how to play this song that I've been playing on clarinet. And all of a sudden, it sounded like—I mean, I'm sure it didn't sound exactly like it, but it sounded like the records I've been listening to. And it was like before that, you know, I, I admired great musicians and I liked good music. You know, I never thought that I could make music like the music that I liked because I was I hadn't found my voice. And it was like when I found the saxophone, like it was almost immediate, like it was like I could see it. It was like all of a sudden, like, oh, we're there right there. That's where you will be able to make music that you like, like like the music that you enjoy. And I was like, oh, wow, I could do that? Like I could make a song that make me feel the way I feel when I hear this Art Blakey record? I could do that? Like, oh, wow. And then I was just hooked, you know, all that addictive personality, like 
97% of it went <laughs> right into the saxophone and music, yeah. What were you excited about, about like Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers when you were 12 or 11? It was a feel. I don't know. It had, it had this kind of like hard, like kind of <clears throat> exciting feel to it that just resonated with me, you know. And there was, you know, there was that there was that tribe called Quest song that had the, the Art Blake example on it. My cousin gave me this tape that had all these Art Blake songs, and that was one of them. That does feel like a secret when you hear that. Yeah, you're like, what's that? This is, you know, and then the rest of the song comes in, and you're like, oh wow, you know, I didn't even know. I don't think I was really fully aware that 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 hip hop was sampling. <laughs> At that point, I don't, I don't know if I was really fully aware of what that meant, you know? I mean, I remember how much it blew my mind when I heard People Every Day by Arrested Development. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I know that song. That's, a, that's that Sly and the Family Stone song my mom loves. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely like that. And then, you know, it made it cool. You know, it instantly made it cool. I mean, it, 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 took, it, it, like, it took it away from my dad. And it gave it to me, you know? And so, like, I didn't. I, I no longer looked at it like it was his. It was mine. His whole record collection was no longer his. It was mine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I started, like, you know, I moved the records. And, you know, it was, like, you know, it was kind of funny. Like, they were literally, like, in a different place. And, I, like, I took them outside to where I used to practice and stuff. And I took the whole record player. And, you know, he came out in a panic. Like, somebody stole the record player. I'm like, no, no, I just moved it. <laughs> when you were a kid did you think your dad's music career was cool my older brother may remember it a little better than me i was pretty young when my dad made a decision not to go not to tour anymore um he was a public school teacher yeah yeah he wanted to stay home he didn't want to be out on the road he went to especially when my parents divorced so that was when i was about three i used to always want my dad to go out and play more but especially by the time I was playing music, um, I always knew he was talented, and I, you know, I, I just—I was such a like—I uh, was a pretty adventurous kid. So like, by the time I was thirteen, fourteen, I was out in the streets, <laughs> you know, playing in jam sessions, doing gigs and stuff. And my dad had kind of like, at that point, by that point, he had been teaching so long and kind of like removed himself from the scene so much that he wasn't playing that much, you know? And so I used to really want him to go out and, like, play. And he was like, I got to go to work in the morning, you know? He's like, you can, you, can, you can sleep through class, but I can't, you know? <laughs> and uh, I was appreciative of the fact that he did make that sacrifice, but I used to always wish that he would get out and play more. So it was, it's been cool for me, like, you know, having him out on the road with us, you know, because it's kind of like, now he is, you know? Was it difficult for you to have uh, this thing that you were really passionate about that your dad was a professional of? No, because like I said before, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't really out. Like, I was out much more. I remember I had, we had a moment actually once where like, I was really active when I was a kid. You know, I was like, um, I don't even know how I did all the stuff I was doing. Um, and I ended up having a gig one of my dad's friends. And so my dad's friend calls the house, and this is like before anyone had cell phones, so he calls the house. My dad answers, and they're just kind of chopping it up. And he's like, yeah, so um, is Kamasi there? <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, he's here. He's like, oh, can I talk to him real quick? And he sees me, like, get the phone, and I'm, like, writing down the information for the gig. And he was like, did you just steal my gig? <laughs> I was like, you gig with you? You played with him too? I was like, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know, you know. So I mean, like, he was he was pretty good about giving me my space musically. You know, he wasn't really like at every gig. I mean, he come to the gigs that I, he thought that I, that I felt like were important for me to be, for him to be at. But like, you know. I mean, a lot of times I had to figure out how to get there and get home. Like, it wasn't, I mean, I benefited from the fact of having, I have, like, six brothers and sisters. So it wasn't, like, all eyes on me. And I was, like, I probably had the least problems of all my siblings, you know. So it was, like, my parents kind of looked at me like, Kamasi's kind of all right. I don't know, dude. <laughs> what am I going to do with this dude right here, you know. Um, so, you know, it, I kind of had both, you know, like. 
if I needed some help with music, I could always go ask my dad, like, you know. But even, like, it was weird because it was, like, I had other friends that had, like, private lessons. And it was, like, a really, like, regimented thing, like, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I go to this guy and he tells me what to do. My dad didn't really tell me what to do. You know, he just, like, here's a whole stack of books, music books, that have everything you need to know about music. Here's a whole big old record collection. Here's any instrument you really want to play. Have at it, you know? And it's just, like, anything I, that I didn't understand, like, hey, I don't understand what a, you know, half diminished, a half diminished and a fully diminished. This is the difference between half diminished and fully diminished. Oh, okay. You know, what's a sharp 11 mean? This is what that means, you know? So it was kind of like a, it was like a, a very, it felt like a very natural relationship with it, you know? So I didn't have that sense of someone driving me, you know? Even more with Kamasi Washington. Stay with us. When we come back from a break, we'll talk about one of his first paying gigs, playing in the band of one Snoop Doggy Dog. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. The midterm elections are only a few weeks away. Yeah, and in the run-up, we here on the NPR Politics Podcast will be there to talk about the major themes, issues, and races. And of course, every time there's a new headline, we run into the studio to explain it. The NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together, we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like, Why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about bugs. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager. And... I was two butts, 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 butts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Kamasi Washington. He's a saxophonist and composer who's worked with Kendrick Lamar, Snoop Dogg, Flying Lotus, and more. His latest album is called Heaven and Earth. It's out now. Here's another song off his new record. This one is called Fists of Fury. Your adolescence was in the early and mid-90s, um, and you grew up in South L.A. Did you have to make a choice at some point in your life that you were going to be the kind of guy that plays music and plays video games and not have a street life? Yeah. Uh, it happened pretty early for me. Um, and I don't think people realize that sometimes, like that identity that like you're a gangster when you grow up in that neighborhood. It attaches itself to you really young, way young, way before you ever do anything that a gangster would do. I was fortunate, and, and it was weird because I had two great parents, college-educated parents, and, like, I had no real reason to fall into that, you know, other than just my self-image from the outside was pushing me into something that I didn't really have on the inside. And um, I had these guys that came to my school, and they and they really taught us um, about the true nature of our history and where we come from and who we are and, like, what my true potential is and and kind of just show me, you know, you think you want to be this, but this is what this really is. Do you want to be that or do you want to be this? And, like, when you give someone that choice, 
it, it kind of immediately shifts you. And the, at, at right around that same time, I found music. And music, like, when I found my love for music, it's like, it really is like falling in love with a person, you know? It's like, you don't want to do, you know, I don't want to do anything else, you know? So it was like, it wasn't a hard decision, like, oh, man, I really want to be in the streets, but I should be a good person. And it was like, all I really want to do, I wake up in the morning thinking about this music. I wake up, I go, you know, I go to sleep thinking about it, and I'm thinking about it all day long, like, I'm so preoccupied with this. I can't even really. Like, what do you want to go to? You want to go spray paint up some walls? Like, ah, no, I'm good, man. Like, you know, fight somebody. Ah, no, I'm cool, man. <laughs> you know, it 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 encompassed me, and it was so. I, I was I was fortunate in that sense that it it caught me right at that crossroads where a lot of kids get kind of swept into something that they really have had no real intention of being in, you know, like it's, you're so young that you don't really even understand what you're getting yourself into until it's too late. And now you're 16, 17 and the world is looking at you like you're an adult and you're into this thing that you didn't know what you were getting into, you know? And so like, fortunately for me, when I was like 10 or 11, someone came along and swept me out of it. At the same time, I found something that gave me another identity for myself. So it was, it was not a hard thing for me to do. You were playing in a jazz band, like playing shows, when you were a teenager. Um, did you always imagine a career in jazz? Jazz was definitely the first music that, that was my first love in music. But... Pretty early on, I was always playing like like literally like the day that I switched to the saxophone. Like my dad was like, "All right, this weekend we're gonna go play at your uncle's church." <laughs> so like I immediately, I mean, it was it was because of jazz, but I immediately added gospel to the story, you know. And I already had hip hop kind of was like the soundtrack of my my generation, my friends, everybody was into that. And then um, so I started playing saxophone in eighth grade and then uh when i went to ninth grade i, I switched schools to like a, i went to hamilton it's like a music academy and so all of a sudden i'm meeting these classical musicians who are like really into classical music and then i developed a love of classical music so i don't think that i don't think i was thinking about a career in that sense i just really like music i just wanted to really make really good music and jazz was probably the fav- my favorite of all the music that i was making one of your first real jobs as a musician, was playing in Snoop Dogg's band. When you got that call, that must have been a mind blower. Oh, like, yeah. Snoop Dogg is Snoop Dogg. No matter, I mean, you could be anyone in America, Snoop Dogg is Snoop Dogg. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. Much less to be, to be a guy from L.A. Oh, yeah. And from South Central L.A., it was like, it was pretty, like, surreal. It was one of those moments where you're like, you definitely, I definitely didn't expect it, you know. I mean, I, I've been gigging around the city a lot, you know, as a kid. Um, and Terrace, before that, Terrace had, he did a tour with uh, uh, Kirk Franklin. It's a gospel um, superstar. And Ter- Terrace Martin, we should say, is is both a pretty accomplished jazz musician and a very accomplished hip-hop producer as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he was he was definitely, like, ahead of his... He was, he was ahead of the pack in a lot of ways. You know, just, like... I remember, I remember, like, when we were kids, he was... He had his own band, like, before us, and it was like, oh, man. Like, that. he was, like, always kind of pushing forward, you know? And so he was the first one of us that, like, got, like, an MPC and started, like, producing and, like making tracks and making the music for hip-hop. Like we, we all listened to it, but I, I hadn't really thought of, like, trying to play hip-hop music, you know? It was like, it existed in a different platform for me. It was like, oh, if I go to a party, you know, I mean, I'm riding around in my car, you know, someone's car, you listen to it, but he was, like, making that music, you know? And I remember he, um, I remember he met Battle Cat. He's a legendary West Coast hip hop producer who worked extensively with Snoop Dogg. Yeah, and I I remember hearing about that, and he was you know so like that was a big deal. We were like, dang, you working with Battle Cat? That's dope. And yeah, and then when he called us, he was like, man, Snoop, because first it wasn't a tour; it was just one gig. He was like, Snoop was doing the Tonight Show, and he wants a horn section, and it was like, oh snap! And so he went and did it, and I remember Snoop walking off the set and it's like I'm taking the band on tour with me 
And we all looked at each other like, I hope that means us as well. Because, <laughs> you know, the horns are the first ones to get fired. <laughs> when the budget gets low, we get nervous. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, and he did. He, you know, he took us all on the road. And it was, I remember, like, first time, you know, Snoop said, hey, what's up, Kamasi? And I was like, dang, Snoop knows my name. That's crazy. You know, and then, like, you know, we playing Madden and, you know, just hanging out. It was like, wow, this is kind of, this is, you know, someone that I looked up to so much and uh, listened to and idolized when I was a kid, you know, especially, like, before I started, I played saxophone. I was really, really into, like, Snoop and Dre. That was, like, it for me, you know. You must have learned a lot about creating the aesthetics of hip-hop when you were playing in a hip-hop band. You can really tell the difference between a band that gets what hip-hop is and a band that is just a perfectly good band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was it was a big learning experience for me because, like I said, before, I, it was a music that I listened to, but I never really tried to play. And I never really investigated, like, what what are hip-hop... What's a hip-hop musician? What does that mean? Like, what does it mean to play to play this music live, you know, because it was such a, my, my association was with a DJ. Hip-hop was with a DJ. It wasn't like, I didn't associate it with a live band like that. Um, even though, you know, coming to find out that a lot of that stuff was live musicians replaying stuff, playing over stuff. You yeah, know. Dr. Dre had kind of pioneered the art of bringing in session musicians to replay a record <clears throat> so that he only had to license the the rights to the song and not the rights to the recording yeah, in yeah. order to use use a sample in a song. Yeah, yeah. And so um, when we get to that, when I, when I, you know, we get to the first rehearsal, um, it was one of those things where it was like I had been studying music so much and so much technically difficult music that I thought that I was going to be fine, and, and and then all of a sudden you get you get there, and it's like their perspective on on what it means to play something right is completely different. It's like it's fifty fifty what notes you're playing, and the other fifty percent is how you play it. Like like literally, like you could play the right notes, and they would look at you like, and I'm like, but I, I, you, that's what you told me to play. I mean, one of the things about hip-hop beat making is guys who do that and women who do that are obsessed with the qualities of sounds. Yeah. So, like, they're interested, depending on who it is, they may or may not be interested in the kind of traditional musical stuff. Um, you know, sometimes they're well-versed in it, sometimes less so. But the the quality of, you know, you could get three hip-hop producers in a room and they could go, they would gladly argue for five hours about a single snare sound. Yeah, exactly. Like, with no problem. Yeah. Whereas in most bands, it's like, oh, yeah, as long as there's a, a, a hi-hat on the eighth note or whatever it is, yeah. then you're doing it right. Exactly. Like, you're a drummer, and if your snare drum is not tuned right, they'll look at you like you're dropping the beat. Or if you're a bass player and, and, and your bass is not super fat, and like, you know, like, these things are like... Not mildly important, but like majorly important. And so at the horn section, it was like, like the phrasing and your tone quality and like the feel of how you play what they wanted you to play was super important, you know. And so it made me kind of think about music, music differently, you know. And then you had people like, you know, everyone in that band pretty much was a producer. And so all of a sudden, um, the conversations that you're around, like, like that, like sounds you know, um, records and, like, understanding the importance of a feel, you know, how something feels. I had that subconsciously, but I wasn't consciously ever thinking of it. And all of a sudden, I'm in this scenario where, like, I have to be very conscious of it. Like, what is this feel? Like, where should we place these three notes that they want us to play? That carried over, actually, to how I play jazz. It was like, all of a sudden, now I'm playing 100 notes, but I still feel the need to put that same care that I put on the three notes over these hundred notes, you know? 
And that's where I started to then hear, like, the trash musicians that I really loved. Like, oh, they're doing that. It, it doesn't matter how complicated it is. They never lost sight of this other side of the music. You know? And I really learned that from playing with Snoop. I'm not a musician, but it seems like it would also be uh, a different kind of listening when you're playing, particularly because in jazz music, especially when you're playing relatively casually, one of the things that's happening often is that there's a uh, there's a soloist and there's a band supporting the soloist and the soloist is doing their thing and often improvisatorily. improvisatorily yeah. <laughs> oh, what a word. Um, improvisatorily. And in hip-hop, uh, you know, your fealty is towards creating a very sharp, very coherent beat because it's got to move people in a very specific way. Yeah. And your soloist is always, I mean, maybe you guys got a solo in the Snoop show, but basically the soloist is always going to be the MC. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's that, and it's and it's also you're playing records. I mean, with Snoop, you're playing hits, so you're playing records that people love and they know, and like, it's <clears throat> a different mentality you have to have of like, you have to really because jazz is so much about self-expression, so much about um, showing who you are, and this scenario is about creating the sound. You know, it's not about you, you know, and like, and that, um, that's an important switch to kind of be able to like have to like, okay, I'm going to, yeah, I could play a lot of stuff, but that's not what this needs. And to kind of really just take you out of the equation and really put above everything this, like you said, this, this this thing that is being created by all of us at the same time this and snoop was a part of that you know he was the face of it but he was still part of it it was like it's very much like all these things have to line up and link up perfectly together to make it feel that way that's going to make everyone feel that way you know and so it was um it's just as difficult in its own way even though you're only playing three notes your three notes have to fit perfectly in this thing that has the bass player, the drums, a DJ, a rapper, keyboards, guitars. Everything has to fit in exactly perfectly. And you can't fit in exactly perfectly just by playing the right notes. We'll finish up my conversation with Kamasi Washington after a quick break. Plus, what if the Grim Reaper had an agent? The answer in short story form when we return. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Our Up First team goes to work while you're sleeping. That way you wake up to the freshest take on the day's news. It's the 10-minute morning news podcast from NPR. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, are you looking for a new comedy podcast? In which case, can I draw your attention to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast? It's a fictional industry podcast for the beef and dairy industries. It won Best Comedy at the 2017 British Podcast Awards, and it features wonderful guests such as Greg Davis. To my knowledge, it's the only cow circus that's ever existed in this country. In rural Russia, every small town has a cow circus. Josie Long. You should have a beef. Have a beef with them. I have a beef with you. I will have a beef with you. Come round my house. And I'll have a beef with you. And Andy Daly. That virus never existed. There was never any such thing as a mad cow disease. That was all a, a, an illusion that uh, Big Lamb came up with. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. Find us at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. And I would recommend starting at episode one. Bye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Kamasi Washington, is a saxophonist and composer. He's collaborated with Kendrick Lamar, Run the Jewels, Flying Lotus, and many others. His newest album is called Heaven and Earth. It's out now. This track is from that album. It's called The Psalmist.
you played on Kendrick Lamar's album To Pimp a Butterfly. And I have to say, like, when I first heard that record, I thought, the thought that I had, it's like, a, as a big fan of hip hop and a big fan of jazz music, was like, oh, someone finally made it work for real. Like, there's plenty of hip hop records that sample jazz records and essentially transform them into hip hop music that are great. Um, and there's plenty of jazz music that's influenced by hip hop music that's wonderful. Um, and there's plenty of overlap and relationship between the two. But often I feel like that aesthetic disjuncture, that difference between them, is really hard to bridge. And when I heard that record, I was like, oh, this works perfectly. Yeah. Like, this is exactly right. Well, one, I mean, I think that there's a couple of things. I think that, like you said, I mean, hip-hop and jazz have always been kind of intertwined, but it was jazz was one... It was intertwined on the level of being a sample, and two, it was meant to be masked to not be jazz. You know, like Dre's putting jazz stuff in there, but it's he did it in a way that if you didn't know the record, you just wouldn't know that that's what that was. You know what I mean? It's like sometimes you hear those samples and it's like, damn, that's where that comes from. You know what I mean? Um, Kendrick took the approach of putting it in the forefront. Like, I'm not trying to take this jazz and turn it into hip-hop or funk I'm, I'm, I'm leave the jazz right there as, as that and i'm not sampling it i'm going to get musicians to play it and create new music that feels like that that i'm not it's not in the background and that was the big to me the, the major innovation that he did was like i'm gonna take this thing that's usually put in the background and masked to to, to that to the point where like if you don't really know you won't even know it's there, you know? That's why a lot of people say, well, it's the first time I've heard jazz or hip-hop. It's like, nah, come on, you hear jazz and hip-hop all the time. But it's not meant to feel like jazz. Kendrick is like, I'm going to make it feel like jazz. And he's such an artist that he can make it feel like it fits as well, you know? And it's kind of a community that you grew up in. I mean, you yeah. ended up on, the, when you ended up on this record, correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't know Kendrick Lamar before you went in there. No, nah, no. Nah. But you knew these guys that you had worked with making jazz records for... At this point, 15 years, maybe more. Oh, 20 years. <laughs> yeah. 20, 25 years. Yeah, and, and then we grew, up, and we grew up in Lamar Park, like around, you know, Kamal Dudes, uh, you know, the world stage. And then right around the corner is Project Blow. And so we grew up, you know, really admiring, like, Freestyle Fellowship and, you know, Farside and all those guys, and they were, like, right around the corner from where we played jazz. Those are L.A. hip-hop groups that really led the way in uh, innovating the kind of possibilities of the aesthetics of rapping, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and they were totally into it. So it was like Horse Tapscott and Freestyle Fellowship were intertwined in them. You know what I mean? It was like, for us, for those that were coming underneath them, you know, it was like they were the same thing. You know, so I think that, you know, and Kendrick coming from that, too. You know, he's coming from Compton, but he was, you know, he, he knew that scene. And, you know, people like Terrace and all those other guys, that whole scene, you know, it, it, it kind of did, like you said, it's like it, 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 Kendrick took it and put it and like, this is how this can really be, you know. And it takes bravery to do that, like to, you know. Let Terrace take a you know a real intense saxophone solo you know it's the second song third song of a really mainstream hip hop record takes courage you know I, I want to hear a little bit of my guest Kamasi Washington on Kendrick Lamar's album To Pimp a Butterfly this song is called You. When you started making your own records, did you already have an idea of what was going to be different and special about them? I mean, was it like something that you'd been saving up? <clears throat> yes, I mean, for me, um, when I started playing with Snoop, um, 
all of a sudden, you know, around that time period of my life, I started really gigging a lot. And I was, it was, I had a probably 60, 40, like 60% was non-jazz, 40% of what I was doing was jazz. And um, I'm right, we came back from a long snoop tour, like maybe like we were out for like maybe like two months or something like that. And I was like, man, um, I have to start making my own music because I'm spending so much of my time making music for other people. I don't want to get lost. I don't want to lose myself. This is not, I didn't get into music for blue-collar reasons. Like, I I, I really want to make great music. And so it's cool to make music for other people. But one, like, to not fall in the pitfall of trying to force in my own musical ideas into whatever you're doing, you know, so I can be a good professional musician and that, like, I'm going to give you what you want. I need to have my own outlet, you know. And so, like, you know, now it's around the time that people really started, the home studio became a real possibility. And so it was... At first, like, uh, I have to just maintain myself because I'm, you know, a bit in demand. And, like, I was playing with Snoop. I was playing with Lauren Hill. I was playing with Rafael Sadiq. I was playing with um, Stanley Clark and Shaka Khan and Gerald Wilson and all these different people. And it was like, I was like a regular at <laughs> LAX. You know, it was like, um, I just had to, like, have an outlet to be able to, maintain like who I am that's I make some music that is exactly the way that I want to do it and that way it it was twofold like one I can maintain myself and still like be able to because I feel like if you're gonna make some music for someone else you gotta make it for them and and give them what they want and not try to you know push their hand one way or the other you know so um it started off as that and then um and I made a few records like just that, just basically like, well, here's what I sound like now. You know, I, I didn't really think of them as like something I was really trying to release. It was just something I wanted to make, you know. Um, and then Lotus um, asked me to make a record for Brain Feeder. And that was the first time I really thought about like making the record that is like, this is my album. This is like what my contribution to music is. Not just like, a functionary thing that's like I need to like document when I'm at and have some some place to be me. This is like okay, now make something that you will feel like is your contribution. Yeah, and that was the first time I had that thought. And for me, then it was like, well, I had to kind of figure out like who am I musically? Like who am I? And you know, I felt like I had the side of myself that was like a instrumentalist, you know, that played saxophone. And then I had the side of myself that's a composer that, like, made music. And so I was trying to make a record, and I made the epic that really showcased both of those two sides of who I am. And then the third component was just, well, what do you think about the world, you know? And so that's kind of, like, where I've been with my records, is trying to show who I am musically and who I am beyond music. Let's hear some music from my guest Kamasi Washington's album, The Epic, from 2015. This song is called Misunderstanding. It's funny, you know, James Brown was famous for touring with two drummers. And the reason, and I, my mom had an old friend who used to play drums for James Brown, and he told me this once when I was a teenager, made me a big impact. He'd always tour, tour with two drummers so he could fire one whenever he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> like I gave him a buffer. <laughs> um, and when you did that tour, when you did the tour for the Epic, you had doubles of a lot of people in your, but you brought a big band. What? <laughs> 
I read an interview where you said, and I thought it was really fascinating, one of the reasons, for example, that you brought two drummers was that when you're in the rhythm section of a jazz band, the expectation is so powerful that you're holding it down, essentially, that by having two drummers, you gave your drummers the opportunity to have the breathing room to express themselves. And that is such a that struck me as such a beautiful idea i mean an expensive idea for you <laughs> cuz you're the one writing the checks when your name's on the when your name's on the billboard or whatever but uh, or on the marquee but that's a really beautiful idea yeah yeah it kind of happened on accident i mean basically what happened is we had a we had this this is the time we were all touring like so the same thing that happened to me happened to all my friends like we got out of high school and Everybody was in demand, and everybody's getting pulled in a million different directions. So we used to joke that, like, getting us all in the room together was like getting the planets to align, you know? And so we, I had this regular gig at this place called Fish Street Dicks. And so, you know, I would come off tour, and whenever I was off tour, I would, we would start back up playing at Fish Street Dicks. And so we were back, and we were supposed to play this one night, and um, the band was supposed to be uh, Cameron... Ronald Bruner and uh, Thundercat. And all three of them canceled on me the day to get. And I gave them a hard time. I was like, you know, this is bull. Like, how you gonna cancel on me day up? Blah, 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 blah. I, you know, even though I knew I could find somebody, I was just giving them a hard time. And so I ended up calling Miles Mosley, Brandon Coleman, and uh, Tony Austin. And somehow, they all came together same day. You know, they, they all, both sets came. And when we played, everybody thought it was going to be chaos. But what ended up happening is that it was that. Like, it freed someone Someone in those, in those positions had freedom, you know. And so, like, I felt like all those guys, all my friends in the rhythm, the rhythm section, probably my, my crew, always struggle between like wanting to just be creative and just be free and just make music and holding down their position in the rhythm section you know so like people like miles you know he struggled like playing like a bass player because he wanted to almost play like a guitar slash cello you know keyboard like he wanted to take crazy solos and do all this stuff and play high and, you know, do all these things. And so, so did Thundercat. But when you put them both together, what would happen is they were fine being in that position for a little while, but then they'd always want to go out. But they could just kind of switch back and forth. And so all of a sudden I was getting, like, more of the creativity and more of the solid. And I was like, oh, this is kind of actually really, really dope. It was dope the very first time we did it. It was like... I was like, wow, that was really dope. And then I just kept it, and now I'm addicted to it, and <laughs> it's hard to hard to go without it. You know, the same thing happened with Cameron and Brandon. It was like, all of a sudden, you know, the keyboard player, like, you don't have to be so worried about, like, playing the chord changes, because he's playing the chord changes, so I can, like, create some other kind of thing. You know, like, Brandon could stop playing the chords and spend two minutes tinkering with his you know his moog synthesizer and like create a really cool sound you know because there's someone else you know and so it just it added such a, a huge amount of creativity but there is also the fact that you know drummers wise that you know guys are not always timely so <laughs> one of these dudes would be at the gig on time so it takes a little bit of stress off <laughs> I mean, you're also a man who's not afraid of a 20-person choir, so... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't hear that many jazz records with the budgets they've got <laughs> bringing in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... um, You know, I, I've always been that way. I've always been the kind of person I like kind of bringing people together. You know, like my house is always the hangout spot when we're growing up. I'm always the one that's advocating for the after party. <laughs> like, let's all go here, everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, I think that that's part of it too. You know? And then you know, it's yeah. You know, as a composer, like the more 
voices you have. It's like the more freedom you have. Well, Kamasi Washington, we're out of time, but uh, I could talk to you about this stuff for forever. I, I love your music. Thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was great to meet oh, you. Oh, man, thanks for having me. Kamasi Washington. If you haven't heard his music, go seek out more of it now. Uh, 2015's The Epic is already a classic. It's almost three hours long. It will not disappoint you. His latest album, Heaven and Earth, is also brilliant. It's out now. Kamasi is touring North America at the moment. He'll be playing Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Brooklyn, and more. Go to the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org for dates and more info. Let's take a listen to one more track from Kamasi's album, The Epic. This one's called Claire de Lune. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Simon Rich is one of my favorite comedy writers in the world. He got started young, first as editor of the Harvard Lampoon, then at just 23 as a writer on Saturday Night Live. He's also written for Pixar, The New Yorker, and he's the author of now seven books. He created the TV show Man Seeking Woman, and he just had another pilot picked up by ABC, and he is not yet 35 years old. Earlier this year, he wrote a book called Hits and Misses. It's a collection of short stories, some of his funniest work to date, and who, man, is he funny. We invited him to come by the Bullseye Studio and read some of his favorites. This one is called New Client. Albie Katz, founder and CEO of Bright Stars Talent, was great at signing actors. Unfortunately, he was less great at providing them with actual careers. The brightest star he'd ever managed was a dancing chimpanzee named Mr. Moe, and he hadn't worked much since the formation of PETA. The humans Albie signed hadn't fared much better. One hardworking man eked out a living as an ass double. The best the rest could hope for was to play a murdered corpse on CSI. Albie knew he was a hack, and he would have quit years ago if it hadn't been for his wife, Rose. Albie had proposed to her when they were still in high school, vowing to take care of her until the day she died. It was one of the few promises he'd kept, and he was determined not to break it. He couldn't afford full-time nursing care, but he still earned enough from his roster of corpses and asses to keep her well-fed and content. She couldn't drink wine anymore since it interfered with all her medicines, but he'd found a non-alcoholic brand at the Rite Aid, and every day he served her glass after glass on a silver-plated tray. She didn't talk much, But when he stooped down to kiss her, she closed her eyes and beamed, just like she had on their first date. Albie had just tucked her in for her afternoon nap when he heard someone knocking on the door. It started as an eager tap, but quickly intensified into a menacing thump. He didn't bother peeking through the peephole. He was 81 years old with stage 4 emphysema. Who else could it be? Death was taller than he expected, about eight foot six if you included his pointy hood. Are you Albie Katz? He intoned in an unsettling baritone. Probably no use denying it, Albie said. Come on in. Death followed him into the bungalow, stooping to get under the doorframe. Can I get you a drink? Albie asked. No, Death said. You sure? Albie grabbed a bottle of Rose's Rite Aid wine. This is a great vintage, a grand crew from France. Happy to open it. Death held up an hourglass. Silence, mortal. Your time has come. Got it, Albie said. Let me just say goodbye to Rose. 
He stepped into the bedroom and looked down at his snoring wife. He was about to kiss her forehead when an idea occurred to him. It was a long shot, sure, but what did he have to lose? He reached into the closet and found his best blazer, the good luck shark skin he always wore to meetings. Then he cracked his neck and strolled back into the living room. Huh, he mumbled. Death glared at Albie, his red eyes burning like a pair of embers. What? Oh, nothing, Albie said, flicking his wrist. You probably wouldn't be interested. What is it, mortal? Growled the Reaper. Tell me. Well, I'm a talent scout, Albie said. I represent actors, features in TV mostly. He took out a business card and offered it up to death. The Reaper turned it over in his giant bony hand. Anyway, Albie continued, I guess I was just curious if you'd ever considered performing. Ha ha. Death said sarcastically. I'm serious, Albie said. There's something about you. You've got a certain quality. A presence. That's ridiculous. Death said. I'm not an actor. You've never even thought about it? No. Really? Albie said. I find that hard to believe. You're telling me you've never once performed in your entire life? Death was silent for a moment. His eyes were still burning, but with slightly less intensity than before. I mean... I did a little theater back in high school, but that was a really long time ago. What kind of theater? It doesn't matter. It was a long time ago. It was stupid. Come on, Albie begged. I'm curious. Death shrugged his knobby shoulders. I guess the one thing I did that didn't totally suck was this production of Macbeth. Albie raised his bushy eyebrows. Whoa, you did Shakespeare? What part did you play? Death towed the carpet. Well, actually, he said, If you must know, I played the part of Macbeth. Albie whacked Death in the robe. Seriously? The lead? Death waved his bony hands in the air. It's no big deal, he said. It's mostly just because no one else wanted to do it. Albie smirked. No one? Well, I got out a couple of guys. Death allowed. But they weren't very good. His voice lowered. I mean, one guy was pretty good, and he'd done a lot of plays before, and it was my first time auditioning. I got it over him, so, you know, that was cool. He shrugged again. But like I said, it was a long time ago. Sounds like you were pretty good. I mean, that was all right. Death said. Like, after that play, people were definitely like, you should pursue that. Like, if you look at my yearbook, it's all, see you on Broadway, stuff like that. But what did they know? It was a long time ago. It was stupid. Listen, Albie said. There's this script making the rounds right now, this Scorsese thing. He's looking for an actor who's over eight feet tall, with a baritone voice, eyes that burn, not too experienced. I know you've got a full-time job, but I'm sure he'd be grateful if you would at least go and meet with him. A smile flashed across Death's face, which he quickly suppressed. I mean, I guess it might be interesting to meet with him. He said. Just so I could have, like, a funny story, you know? As a goof. Albie nodded. I'm not even sure I even want to do it. Death stressed. Like, even if you wanted to cast me in a movie, it's not like it's my big dream to become some actor. Of course not, Albie said. I mean, I don't mean any offense to actors. Death clarified. It just seems like kind of a silly life. It's completely silly, Albie confirmed. Always being hounded by the press, people asking for autographs, trying to be your buddy. Yeah. Death said. Yeah. Still, it might be fun just to meet with Scorsese. As a goof, you know? Just as a fun, stupid goof. Right, Albie said. As a goof. He gestured at the empty hourglass. Of course, these meetings do take a little bit of time to set up. Death hesitated. I guess I don't have to take you right this second. Albie grinned and whipped out a standard Bright Stars contract. Death's hands twitched anxiously as he flipped through the official-looking pages. Should I change my name? He asked. Is Death too Jewish? We can discuss later, Albie said. Death nodded and signed on the dotted line. Okay. He said. So what now? Is it like a thing where you call me when there's something? Yes, I call you. Cool. Death said. Cool. He started to leave but stopped in the entryway. One other thing I might as well tell you about is that I also kind of play a little music. Mostly guitar, but also piano and bass. Good to know, Albie said. And I took two years of tap. Death said quickly. Okay, I'll let you get to work. You'll call me, right? That's how it works. I'll call you, Albie confirmed. Okay. Death said. Okay. 
He floated out the door and vanished in a haze of wispy smoke. Albie heard a rustling sound in the bedroom. He grabbed the Rite Aid wine, went inside, and kissed Rose softly on the cheek. Who are you talking to, sweetie? she asked. I just landed a new client. Ooh, Albie, she said, beaming. You're the best in the biz. He poured out two glasses and they clinked them together. I'm not bad, he said. Simon Rich, reading the short story, New Client, from his book, Hits and Misses. Uh, all of his books are so funny. I I really cannot begin to tell you how funny Simon Rich is. Uh, if you've got a trip coming up maybe for the holidays, pick up that new one, Hits and Misses. You won't be disappointed. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Here at Maximum Fun HQ, we had some high-quality Halloween costumes, including Banana, Patrick Starfish, McDonald's cashier, Ellie from Jurassic Park, and Danny, our operations associate, dressed as Kevin, Bullseye's producer. I was Giants legend Willie Mays, which I realized was a mistake when I started to walk around with my children trick-or-treating in Los Angeles. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan. Thanks also to the Go team for recording our theme song, Huddle Formation. They and their label Memphis Industries let us use it, and we're ever grateful to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. You can find hundreds, hundreds, almost coming up on 20 years' worth Ooh. Oh, on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. The Outshot will be back next week. This week it was a casualty of jury service. I guess that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 